0: All right. Let me pray for us. Let's get started. Father, thanks for gathering us here this morning. Thanks so we can come to your word and uh, learn and study about the temple, um, the ways in which you long to dwell with us. And we pray that as we hear it, read it, and see it, that it would be a worshipful experience for us. Uh, we thank you. Uh, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so good morning. Today we're so we we just started a series last week on the idea that god dwells with his people and so last week harry did a study for us on the tabernacle and the way the tabernacle if you guys remember was um yeah let me give a quick i like i like that harry give a timeline so if you guys remember the history of the old testament um the exodus happens here it's around oops it's around the year uh, it's written down 1445, and they're wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? Uh, so they enter Canaan in uh, Joshua in 1405. This is like just rough estimates. Uh, and so while they're in the uh, desert, they, God gives instructions in the second half of Exodus to build a tabernacle. Tabernacle. tabernacle the tabernacle was just a tent um, that it was a portable sanctuary uh, that the people of Israel, wander, when they would wander in the desert, uh, the cloud that they were following would stop in a place and then they would set up a tent there. And then at night it was like a pillar of fire. Right? And so they just followed this thing around the desert. Uh, and so the tabernacle is the primary place of worship until the temple is instituted. and That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, but just to give a quick... Uh, timeline overview again. Um, So from 14, so around like seven or eight years, so 1398. You're saying BC, right? Yeah. um, This is not... uh, (laughs) This is not uh, during the medieval ages. This is BC. Um, So, you know, they're they're doing, they start the conquest of Canaan, right? Do you guys remember? Um, and then for around maybe how many years is it? In 1050. So almost 350 years, this is a period of Israel's judges. Sorry, that's bad Oh, uh, but that's like Deborah, Samson. Uh, you guys know those guys, right? Um, and then from 1050 to 1010. Saul his king and then until maybe nine was it sixty? No, nine seventy that's when David is king. Okay, so during this whole time the tabernacle Oops yeah, actually no I extended there. The tabernacle is the primary place of worship and during this whole time they had uh, if you guys remember the the promise, right, uh, that God is going to take them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, even though after they had entered uh, for almost like 400 years, they are still, they still haven't been able to rest or settle in the land because there's enemies, there's Philistines, there's Canaanites, all these people, right? And so... Um, you know, during the judges, the period of the judges, you know, constantly they're being harassed, and even when Saul was king, uh, we read about the Philistines. That's where David was fighting Goliath as a child, right? And so this whole time, they've been fighting, and they haven't been able to rest, and uh, they've still been a nomadic people. Um, so that's where we pick up, and so yeah, we'll get started. Uh, all right, so. I should have given this introduction first, but basically today we're looking at Solomon's temple uh, and it, how it replaces the tabernacle and we're going to take a look at it both historically and structurally. So and, you're saying the tabernacle is
1: all through this timeline uh, from the time of the Exodus all the way to the temple yeah. of
0: Solomon? Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll read about this. Um, and so this is where Solomon is... So the tabernacle
1: is around for something like 500 years?
0: Yeah. okay um so we'll take a look at it first historically and then structurally uh so number one uh the first thing that we see when it comes to the temple is that uh, god is the one who chooses who builds the temple uh we can see that right here after finally having finished the conquest of canaan david had rest from his enemies and so now he wants to build a temple but god does not let him you guys might remember the story. God decrees that Solomon is going to be the one to build a temple. And so, Harry, can you read Second Samuel 7? Yeah. Uh, now when the
1: king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent.
0: Right. And so, in Second Samuel 7, we, at the beginning, we read that God had finally given him rest from the surrounding enemies, right? And so, he has, in a sense, completed the conquest, uh, has gotten all the land. It, this is like, yeah, this is the high point of Israel. And so uh, in that story in 2 Samuel 7, God, uh, David is basically saying, I want to build God a temple. Um, I'm living in this house in Jerusalem, and yet God is dwelling in a tent. That doesn't seem fair. Uh, but if you remember the story, Nathan, uh, the prophet Nathan, he gets a dream, he gets a word from God, and Nathan goes to David, and he says to him uh, that God is pleased that you want to build a house, uh, but you will not be the one to build it. Uh, you will not be to, the one to build it. Sa- Solomon is going to build it. So Chris... Right? He
1: actually says, your son. Your son. It's a purposely ambiguous...
0: Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but we'll we'll, we'll return to that. Your then. son,
1: David's son, will build the temple.
0: Yeah, if you guys didn't catch... It's Jesus later calls himself the son of David, that's like a lot of the prophecies, but he's we'll 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 talk about that at the end uh Chris, can you uh uh read first chronicles? yeah then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying... You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Cool. Thanks. And so, um, as you can see, the two points that I wrote out there. I think the reason why these are significant is number one, or letter A, is that God initiates His own worship. So that if you guys remember in the wilderness, in the when the tabernacle was being built, um, it's not like Moses was like, okay, we're just gonna we'll build something portable that help us worship God. But actually, if you read the second half of Exodus, it's like very precise, very detailed instructions on the building of the tabernacle. And so, even then God is the one that gives instructions to Moses. And Moses is the one that listens and uh, starts it, right? And so God initiates it. And yet, over here, um, in, one, in one sense, David was trying to initiate the worship, and God is saying no. Uh, that God is the one that initiates it. And so God says that his son it's going to build the temple. Uh, so that's the first part. But the second part is a little bit more interesting, uh, which is that um, he says that you... Over here, God gives David a reason. right? He says... What verse are you? Uh, verse 8. But the word of the Lord came to me, that's David speaking, came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. And so the question is... What what is this referring to? Uh is it referring to uh the story of Uriah, which is basically when David slept with Bathsheba um and they she he impregnated her. And then if you guys remember the story, uh he brings Uriah back in the battlefield and then plots it has like this whole uh plot conspiracy to kill Uriah. Um but the commentators so so, say no not really uh the a better interpretation is that these are the wars that david has been fighting right uh the uh, how many people he has killed if you guys remember in first samuel there's there's a song that people sing and they say like samuel has killed thousands Saul has killed killed thousands upon thousands but david has killed ten thousands ten thousands and so david has just been killing a lot of people right uh and so there's a lot of blood shed but the question is why is that a problem? is, it, is God saying that because you are a murderer, that's why you're not going to build the temple? Um, the answer is no, because God was the one that instructed him to wage those wars. And so what is the real reason? If it's not ethical, what's the reason why David is not allowed to build a temple? And the reason is more uh, redemptive historical, which is to say that basically um, that David represented uh, an era of conquest uh, that he was a man of war that he represented the period in which people were still not settled where people were still trying to attain the promised land and yet and solomon instead he represents rest and peace Uh, so that if you guys read that i read the latter half of second chronicles that paragraph it says in verse nine a man of um, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest and quiet, uh, for his name will be so His name shall be Solomon. I will give him peace and quiet. Oh. Anyway, I'm mixing up the verses, but there's a lot of words about rest and peace. And so Solomon represents uh, a new age in which there was. So what
1: you're saying is the co- the tabernacle mm-hmm. is not only um, not not only is it you know israel wandering it's a deportable aspect but it's also israel in a period of conquest mm-hmm. and the temple is not just israel settled but it's israel in peace and resting
0: yeah yes precisely and so that's those are the reasons so god basically what we're trying to say is that god is the one who chooses he initiates his own worship. He chooses who is going to build it. So he's
1: not rejecting David because something's wrong with David. He's mm-hmm. saying David, you're a different era or a different epoch.
0: Yeah. If anything, David was like he's like the highest point of Israel's history. Um, people, he, he's like the man after God's heart, even though he had messed up. Uh, he people constantly say to it like in the in the later in the latter parts of the Old Testament, talking about like uh, people who walk in God's ways, like David or or evil like ahab um any questions about this idea so far god choosing who okay uh it gets better <laughs> we're just we're just talking about the his, uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about the uh, structure of the temple in the second half um all right so the second point that we see uh historically god chooses where the temple is going to be built uh Neiman, can you read uh, Deuteronomy 12? <laughs> but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your veil offerings and your three-wool offerings each on and the firstborn of your heart and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord, and you shall rejoice, See you in your households and your household all that you undertake, and the Lord your God has blessed you. Cool, thanks. And so, if you guys... Yeah, there's kind of... Let's see. Okay, so this is the Mediterranean Sea. And so, in the Old Testament, in the law, there was always this idea that there would be, there would one day be a central place where people would come to worship. And yet, so far, there's a tabernacle and there's like a bunch of altars everywhere. And so, the tabernacle, while it was a primary place of worship, it wasn't the sole place. And so there was always this question of like, where is that place that God is going to give to <coughs> us? Uh, and we see that now it's being fulfilled, right, in the temple. Um, was there any... Yeah. Let's see, Aikman, can you read 2 Chronicles 3? When
1: Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, Alma Murat. Moriah? Moriah, yeah. When the Lord had appeared to David David's father, of the place that David appointed on the crescent floor of Ordin, the Jehoshu site, began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign.
0: Okay, so we see that Solomon builds on this place in Jerusalem called... Jerusalem's kind of closer to here. But... Um, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And so what is the significance of that? It says... Uh, that place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and so the first significance that we see is um, when it comes to the, this idea of who Ornan was. Let's see. Let me. I'll just tell you the story real quick. Basically, the way the way it started is in Second Chronicles twenty uh, one First Chronicles twenty one. There's a story of I don't know if you guys remember. There's a story of how David he wants to take a census. And Joab, his army commander, says no. But, God, but David and them, like, they fight it out, and then David is, he wins, right? He wins the argument. And so Joab goes, takes a census, and God is pissed. Uh, it, do, it doesn't say clearly why, but basically, a lot of people suspect that it's because David was trying to trust more in his military power, more in the numbers of warriors than trusting in God. And so God is angry, and he comes. To uh, David. And he gives him an option. He says because you have sinned. I'm going to give you three options. You have to choose one. Either letter A. You can choose three years of famine. Letter B. You can choose uh, three months of, of attacking from enemies. Or letter C. You can choose three days of pestilence. Where an angel would come and basically destroy a bunch of things. And so David chooses letter C. The angel coming and destroying. Um, and so... From there, let's pick up Tony. Can you read uh, First Chronicles 21? Yes. Yeah, sure. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, "It is enough. Now stay your hand." And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor, of in the Jebusite. Now, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor, of in the Jebusite. Yeah, that's. I think it's really significant that God said He was going to punish. He's going to just go on a, a destroying spree. And yet, when He comes to the city of Jerusalem, this angel. I don't. I want to draw an angel. Um, this <laughs> angel comes to the city of Jerusalem. It's it talks about if you read it in detail, it talks about how like the, sword, the angel has a sword unsheathed, he's about to like strike it down. Uh, and God says, Stop. And so, uh, even though he said that he was going to uh, destroy, he relented. And David he comes and he raises up an altar. If you guys know the story, so he
1: stops right at the site of Ornan the Jebusites threshing,
0: floor. yeah. Um, so, even from the outset, even from the outset, there was nothing that was left up to chance. The God uh, precisely determined the location of, of which the temple was going to be, and so um, I think it's interesting that, again, that God has said He was going to destroy it, and yet He relented, and this is where David comes and he builds an altar. Right? It says that um, in verse eighteen. Uh, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on that threshing floor. And so he goes and buys it. Um, that's where that famous verse comes from. It, like Ornan is basically saying, here, I'll give, you, I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you all the animals. And David says, no, I'm going to buy it from you. I'm not going to give to God that which cost me nothing. Right, And so that's where this story comes from. How David is only going to give things to God that cost him something that requires sacrifice from him. And so that's the first significance that this place that was chosen was the site of Orin and the Jebusites at the threshing floor. Um, and obviously that has I mean it, ha- it echoes later on uh, what what that looks like in terms of salvation in Jesus and we'll we'll draw it out later. Uh letter B, let's see. Uh Karen, can you read Genesis 22?
1: After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided.
0: Cool, thank you. Um, So Moriah, the word Moriah, this idea of uh, Mount Moriah, or the land of Moriah, is only mentioned twice in the whole Bible. Uh, in a lot of the translations I checked Uh, and it's interesting that Moriah this place that Solomon built the mountain on which Solomon built the temple the only other place it's mentioned is in connection to Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac or at least, you know, when he was tested to go sacrifice Isaac and that's the place where if you guys remember right as he's about to kill Isaac God says stop and he provides a a ram, right? and then Um, Abraham he builds builds an altar and he says on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided and so the temple was built on the place where Abraham had previously said on the mount it shall be provided the sacrifice so any questions about the significance of the place about like how it was chosen anything like that
1: so it's like these multiple layers of backstory Mm -hmm. are attached to the site Um, these layers of stories it's mariah isaac it's uh, david and the census the
0: pestilence Mm -hmm. Um, and we didn't even touch on like there's so much more right like uh michael and i we were like exchanging all these emails and talking about like what is the significance that it's on the top of a mountain rather than just on some like ordinary playing field or something like that right? (coughs) Um, and the idea of a mountain evoking this grand sense of like um, bigness, or God always, you know, He's a lot of times when He meets people, He's on a mountain, Mount he Sinai. Um, he's He's meeting people on mountains, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. The idea that you have to go up in order to see God. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't even we did even go. In. There's a lot more layers that you're talking about. Uh, but but, but, it's, but it's
1: these these are symbolic meanings, mm-hmm. right, that tell us what the temple is for. Because it was where God stopped destroying, he stopped his judgment twice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like this crucial vortex land <laughs> where it has vortex all this... Vortex is like... Yeah, oh. right? It's, 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 it's this one spot in Israel mm-hmm. where it has all this meaning where <clears throat> God stopped his
0: judgment. And then he says, okay, one should have built the temple right mm-hmm. And if you guys... I mean, if the... I think you guys can pick up on the connection. But this is ultimately where Jesus is uh, crucified, right? Outside of Jerusalem, on the mountain. And so there's a lot of, uh, yeah, rich connections. uh, Vortex of things happening there. All right. So no questions about the history of it. Uh, In that case, let's go on to the details of the temple. Um, So next week, I'm going to talk about the individual, like, aspects of the temple so like the if you guys look at the picture there's like bronze pillars there's like a sea basin like all like all those things Uh, but for today I'm just gonna I want to give like a very broader broader strokes of like what's what's going on with the temple and so basic differences uh, between the temple and the tabernacle right and so uh, basically the biggest thing that we see is that between the tabernacle and the temple a lot of the same elements are there but the the imagery or like the materials like everything has been like heightened exponentially um so there's still a holy of holies there's still a most holy place there's still a altar uh yeah altar for burnt offerings there's still you know a basin where people can like wash things and wash animals but it's like it's exploding in terms of like what it looks like um and so let's see the first the first area, the first differences that, uh, source of difference that we see is in the types of material used. Uh, Justin, can you read Exodus? The... Yeah. <clears throat> and you shall make for the tent a covering of canned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen embroidered with needlework.
1: Cool. Okay.
0: So this is, if you guys remember from last week, for those of you guys who are here, uh, this is referring to the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, in order to enter into the most holy place, right? So this is the holy of holies. This is the most holy place. Uh, Oops, just the holy place. Holy place. And we said that only priests can enter here. And only high priest can enter here once a year, on the on Yom Kippur, right, the Day of Atonement. And so, this is talking about what was used just for this door right here. And if you guys read it, um, or the ram skin refers to like the tent's covering, but on the on the door, it was um, a cloth with purple, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And so, um, this cloth of like rich colors. That's a cloth of rich colors. Um, <laughs> this cloth of rich colors was used to, uh, to, as a door into the most holy place, right? And back then, the dyes were really expensive. So that if you guys remember the story of Joseph and how uh, Isaac had given him the multicolored c- coat, it was really expensive, really precious. Um, I think some, I think Michael equated it to like a Mercedes Benz, right? It's, that's how expensive it was. And so, at the door to this temple or this tabernacle was a cloth with a lot of different colors. And yet, when we look compared to the temple, Carmen, can you read First Kings 6?
1: For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorpost were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorsteps of olive wood in the form of a square, and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with
0: three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Okay, cool, thanks. Um, So, in both of these uh, passages. It's just describing only the door. There, we can we can describe all a lot of the different differences. But I was I only want to focus on the door just because it gives us a good good case study. Uh, and for in the in that passage, some words that you guys might not have recognized, like a nave is referring to the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary is referring to the holy place. Uh, but even in just the doors, we see that uh, this is a door. That's a weird door. But uh, the door to the temple is, like, filled with, like, all these, like, intricate drawings. It's it's overlaid with gold, right? And we talked about... Well, we'll talk about the gold later. Uh, but it's, it's just the material... Even in terms of, like, the material use, it's just way more expensive or, like, richer or, like, precious stones, precious metals, precious wood being used. Um, and so... And so we see an intensification of the materials. Uh, the second intensification that we see is in the kind of imagery that, sh- that shows up. Let's see. <sighs> Ashley. Can you define arboreal? Arboreal. Arboreal, if you guys know. Because says right there, yeah. arboreal. Module. Arboreal in Spanish, or arbor is. Like, well, wait, we should tree. ask. Does anyone know? Oh, yeah. You speak tree. Spanish? Tree. tree, right? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Somebody said tree, right? Did I it? Yeah, okay. So arboreal basically means like like plant life, like trees, like, you know, that kind of cool stuff. And so mo- and motif, does anybody know what motif means? Like
1: design kind of theme. theme.
0: Design theme, yeah. <laughs> like the over, overworking, uh, overarching design theme. Uh, something that's basically repeated, right? And so we see in terms of, like, the plant life, tree life, in terms of that kind of imagery being shown, that intensifies. So let's see what that looks like. Uh,
1: he also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cup, its calyxes, and its flowers were, one, were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it.
0: Yeah, so that's describing in the... In the tabernacle, it's the menorah, right? And Harry touched on it last week. And we said the menorah, and we'll talk about it in detail next week, but just for the sake
1: of time. Oh, by the way, like Harry asked, is it like just on yeah. small? It's actually human-sized.
0: It's huge. Yeah, the amount of gold, it was like 75 pounds of gold used in the lamps. And so it's like pretty big. I don't know what that equates to, like, but I'm sure it's big. Um... Yeah. Okay, so yeah, what I was saying was that the, the menorah, you know, it's the lampstand inside the holy place right in the tabernacle. Mark these tabernacle, tabernacle and temple. Okay, and so in the holy place, the only and so Harry was saying that this represented. Does anybody remember? Yeah, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, right? So it was like. the garden of eden um and so as you were entering you saw this thing that looked this golden statue that looked like a giant tree and it it evoked immediately uh ideas of eden as you were entering um there's okay and then when we come to the holy place into the temple um everything is there's just like uh things galore so if you like even look on the in the diagrams um along the walls uh we see Trees being like designed, and if you if you if we go back to the passage that uh Carmen read in first Kings 6, even on the doors, there's like the words of uh palm trees and open flowers. The this is verse 32, right? Yeah, verse 32, 32 uh, verse 35 again. Um, it just describes how even on the doors, there's like these palm trees. I don't know what I'm doing here. And open flowers. <laughs> okay, and so there's like all these like very beautiful designs on the doors. Why is that? Why isn't
1: that beautiful?
0: <laughs> this is it's because you don't it's know true beauty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so there's like an, like an intensification of uh, the arboreal motif. And we said last week that uh, that this uh, reminds us of Eden, right? That Eden was a garden. Uh, temple, and that as people are entering into this uh, temple, they see uh, pictures of tr- plant life, uh, of trees, um, and even in the lampstands. Again, we're going to talk in detail, uh, but in the in the temple there were ten lampstands. It wasn't just like one, and so there's just like a it's lot like a forest. Yeah, it was. A- oh, gosh, but there's a lot of trees and gold and um, yeah, plant life. Let's, um, let's see, hold on. Actually, let's talk about that right now. Um, So the gold, does anybody remember last week why it was significant that the tree of life... I I think that's important because
1: if the temple was supposed to simulate a garden Mm -hmm. experience, then you would expect that all the carvings... First of all, you wouldn't overlay it with gold, you would leave it natural right? wood mm-hmm. maybe you would paint it green the leaves but everything is gilded everything is layered in gold yeah. which seems to at least superficially
0: take away from the garden motif right yeah did everybody pick, get that and so why then was this menorah gold why was there so much gold being overlaid on the doors and like being cut, etched into the walls? Like when you
1: enter the temple Everything is gold. There isn't a single spot that isn't layered in gold. It's mm-hmm. just pure gold everywhere, ceiling and floor, included.
0: Yeah. Any any guesses? If you guys were there last week, you should know. It's the Genesis two reference, that Michael. Mm-hmm. This week. Do you remember what the reference basically said? Uh, there's like onyx and gold in the. Yeah. When it's describing when it's describing uh, the Garden of Eden, <coughs> it talks about how like there's like these rivers that flow out of it and if like as it's describing the rivers one of the land one of the descriptions talks about how there's a land just like where there's much gold right and when it's referring to the Garden of Eden there's this reference to gold and it's uh, because of that like if you went into the Garden of Eden basically you would just see like gold everywhere like lying around Um, and in order to like evoke that sense of like God's presence how it has gold it's not just because it was like worth a lot of money, that they're like, oh, you know, we should use expensive things for the temple. Uh, but it's because it, again, evoked the imagery of the Garden of Eden. And so there's a lot of gold. But right? it's also a good reason be because it preserves the wood and all the temple itself by having a coating of something. I mean, if you just had wood just exposed
1: over years and years and years, it'd be great. So uh-huh. gold would probably help preserve it as well.
0: Yeah, I guess they didn't have, like, the laminate yeah support, I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's not just purely practical yeah, yeah, yeah. no of course not, but yeah definitely doesn't hurt yeah um okay well, it didn't last too long so <laughs> they didn't yeah. need to worry yeah i got I got just <laughs> okay we, we need to okay well, let's speed speed up okay uh let's see oh gosh iris, iris that's right uh can you read the verse from exodus 26
1: Oh I don't know what I'm... Doing. This,
0: Where is the veil, first of all? This is like a trail. Okay, so this veil right here uh, is the one that Harry described, and it's right there. It it guards the entrance, or it keeps the entrance between... Yeah, curtain. Between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, right? And so it's like this... It's embroidered onto a cloth. And again, we talked about how that was pricey in of itself because of like the dye's uh, the expensiveness. But if you look at the temple... Look at it. There's like this cherubim all over the doors, even in this door right here. Uh, that door, there, it's like all over the walls. And if you look inside the Holy of Holies, um, there are these like giant cherubim statues. And so um, in in the tabernacle, the only place where the cherubim was, was on this right here, that curtain. And on the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, but once we get to the temple, it's just everywhere. Uh, And again, if you guys remember the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were driven out westward, uh, there were cherubim. Oh yeah, they were driven out eastward. uh, (laughs) There were cherubim and a flaming sword guarding the way, keeping them from entering back in, right? Um, So that when you... This is north. So that when you enter... And we talked about this too uh, last week. uh, So that when you enter into the temple or the tabernacle... You're entering westward. Um and the cherubim are guarding. Uh, the you're, you're heading back in the direction that Adam and Eve were expelled. hmm Um and so there are cherub and so again it's like this grand reenactment of the Garden of Eden, how how God is enabling us to enter back into the presence, back into uh the garden where He where He dwells. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Um, and lastly, this third place where we see an intensification is in the size and the sense of permanence. Uh, Michael, can you just read 1st King? In
1: the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts according to all its specifications.
0: He was seven years in building it. Okay. So that's just, I just add that to show how long it took. That's like with thousands of workers, um, but even in the if you look at the size of the tabernacle and the temple, um, it's like over double or it doubles in the sense of like how big it becomes um, It's built with a lot of stones, it's built with um, a lot of wood right and basically again, it just evokes a sense of like of settledness of whereas the tabernacle was a tent uh, that was for a nomadic people. Uh, it was for wandering people. The temple, again, it was like all these like very rich uh, stones. It's it's huge compared to at least the tabernacle, and again, it evokes the sense of how uh, grand and how complete and how awesome it is.
1: That I think that is also an important detail because it gets bigger mm-hmm. from the tabernacle to the temple. It doubles in size, and that's an important detail for later on.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. It's when Michael, bigger, basically. when Michael, yeah, talks about the new city, the new Jerusalem you'll see he'll he'll touch on it um but it gets bigger um and in that sense it it intensifies okay any questions so far about like the structure of the temple and the details the significance of it all right and so we talked about the gold and going westward right right. i wanted to make sure i touched on the, the cherubim guarding the way um okay so what is the significance um Ignore that. Ignore that verse, real quick. Uh, so uh, there's there's a couple things that I wanted to touch on, but I forgot to put it in the notes. We, and the first one is that again, the temple, the temple is a kind of fulfillment or a kind of like, um, it's like the next step of the tabernacle, right? It's the fulfillment. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, it. What was uh We talked about how it represents how God had brought um, Israel into. The land, gosh, oh gosh, this is bad map. How God had brought Israel into the land; He had settled them. He had cleared away the enemies, cleared away the stones, um, and how now they are in the temple. And so the temple again represents how God, this God's uh, dwelling place, right? And yet we know that that isn't enough. um, That later on, this is a temple. Later on, when Israel sins, uh, they are exiled and they are cast out west, uh, east, east. they're cast (laughs) east, uh, right? Assyria, uh, Babylon, Uh, and in a sense, that is reenacting the story of Genesis, the story of Eden, how they had been in God's presence, they had been uh, brought in, and yet when they sinned, uh, they were sent east, and the temple was destroyed. Even though it, it was supposed to evoke the sense of like permanence, the sense of grandness, it was not enough. And the, pe- and the temple was destroyed. Everything got uh, blown up, right? Um, so that we know that ultimately... Uh, let's see, this was 930. It gets destroyed in like 586. And, yeah. uh, and then it, gets, it starts getting rebuilt. But ultimately... In Jesus, uh, the temple is fulfilled, right? In, uh, and we, we've we seen that all throughout, right? That's the passage. We actually, when, you know, I mean, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but what happens is after the temple is destroyed
1: and they're in exile in Babylon, the prophets come and they say the temple will be rebuilt, but they say the temple will be even greater than Solomon. Um, It'll be far grander. And then the imagery, actually, for example, if you look at the end of uh, Ezekiel, the imagery is really lush. It's really like... Like the leap from the tabernacle of the temple is nothing compared to the next leap. It's going to be far grander. Mm-hmm. And so they rebuild the temple, and when they rebuild the temple, it's actually smaller than Solomon's temple. And what happens, Ezra and Nehemiah, everyone's weeping. They're crying because they see the temple, and they're like, wow, it looks like a shack. Mm-hmm. And what happens is Herod comes, and Herod reads this prophecy. He's like, you know what? I'm going to be the one. And so he builds Herod's temple, which is this grand temple, but even then, it, you're supposed to feel this emptiness that Uh, It doesn't quite match. It doesn't quite fit the description.
0: Mm -hmm. If you guys remember, yeah, Nehemiah, he goes and rebuilds the walls and he rebuilds everything. And then, yeah, I remember that. They're like weeping. They're weeping. The older generations are weeping because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple and they're like, this doesn't even compare uh, to what we had. And so, in that sense, it doesn't, it it misses uh, or, yeah, it wasn't the fulfillment of the prophecies uh, that the prophets had declared. And so, fast forward, we see how all of these things uh, are, well, they're par- is it partially fulfilled? They're partially fulfilled in Christ, and we'll see the ultimate fulfillment later on. But they are fulfilled in Christ so that when um, God has said to David that your son will build the temple, right, uh, not you, uh, that in one sense it referred to Solomon, but that in a grander sense, uh, that Jesus is the one who brings true settlement, who brings true peace, who brings uh, true uh, permanence. Um, we see that right in John two. Tommy, can you? Oh, do you have it? John, 2 can you read that? John two. Mm-hmm. Je- Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple." And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Yeah. And so we know that ultimately that the temple, the tabernacle, that those things were fulfilled in Christ. That he is the true presence of God, that he is the one... Uh, that truly, uh, will you know, sacrifice so that we can all enter into the holy of holies, right? Uh, if you guys remember the story in Matthew 28 or 27, when Jesus is crucified, the the curtain inherits temple—this I saw it—by Herod's temple, the curtain tears or tears like this, um, so that the people can enter into back into the presence, in the presence of God. Any questions? about the temple about the history so the ultimate fulfillment of the temple is man
1: it's a human being walking amongst us that's amazing
0: yeah it evokes God walking with man in the cool of the day that Jesus comes back and he walks among us alright well let us pray (laughs) Uh, Father thank you for the study thank you that uh, we are reminded that you are the one that initiated with us, that you are the one that enabled us to come into your presence, and that while we were unworthy, while the cherubim and the sword guarded the way from us entering into fellowship with you, that you broke down that barrier, uh, and now we can worship you, now we can be in relationship with you. And so as we go into worship now, help our hearts to soar with joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.